Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Today's episode is brought to you by Empower. It doesn't matter how much money you have, we all have money questions. Empower is here to answer those questions so you don't have to worry. Take control of your financial future with a real-time dashboard and real live conversations to empower what's next. Start today at empower.com. A lot of people spend a lot of money on things like skincare, fast fashion, and even surgery, all in the name of self-improvement. But as the price of perfection rises, when is it time to call it quits? I'm Rima Hreis, host of This Is Uncomfortable, a podcast from Marketplace. This season, we dig deep into the financial trappings of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Inside the Hive. I'm Emily Jane Fox. I'm here with the birthday boy himself, Joe Hagan. Joe, we're in the same state. Yes. Well, welcome. Welcome back to East. Welcome home. Thank you. It feels that way. It feels both like I never left and never lived here, but I'm so happy to be back. It's a glorious sunny day. I mean, we're trying to do California for you. It does. It best feels, we can. well, it doesn't quite feel like that, but it feels very good. And what feels even better is that we have a very exciting interview today. We have. Oh, my God. I'm so excited. We have Hunter Biden. In a one-on-one, we sat down earlier this week and we talked all about his book, which I know you and I have talked all about, um, but we got to go right to the source and I'm really excited for you to listen to it. I don't want to, to spoil it, but it's uh, as Biden as Biden could be. That's really the only way I can describe it. It was raw and emotional and personal and I just was so grateful that he took the time to do it and I echo the fact that you guys should read the book because it's just a fascinating, real, grounded look at a problem that every family in America suffers for, and they just happen to be the family in America. Well, I love this because we started out, we read the book independently of knowing we'd interview him just to get our eyeballs on it and give our opinion. We gave our straight ahead, plain opinion, and... Now we can go straight to the source, and this all kind of came to be after the fact. Is it true that maybe he even listened to our podcast? Uh, it's, you know, who doesn't listen to our podcast, right? <laughs> it feels like ubiquitous listening, right? I, I think that it's, it's a study in persistence because I had wanted to sit down with him, and he was very, very close about this book. You know, he really didn't do a lot of interviews. He did... I noticed. Two TV things. I think he did a very small, small number of podcasts, and that was it, which is very unusual. So the fact that we got him uh, felt great, and the fact that he was so willing and so open to talk about hard things was even greater, and I'm really excited. And as you pointed out before we started recording here, it's kind of a perfect week for it. I, I I can't think of a week where it wouldn't be great to have him 
But this week in particular, because of what's going on the news with another famous political family, it feels like a nice tie-in. Is that right? It is a little nice. I mean, I thought of it today. I'm reading the papers this morning and everybody's talking about Liz Cheney. Liz Cheney, of course, daughter of former Vice President Dick Cheney. And now she, uh, in a weird you know, role change for her, I think, has become this sort of like a martyr for sanity in the Republican Party, right? The whole the whole party is kind of uh, rallying around this the big lie that Trump has been telling, rallying rallying around Trump himself, and the big holdout is none other than Liz Cheney, which is like multiple ironies cascade from this because you know a decade ago she was seen as like the leading edge of the hard edge of the Republican Party, right? She was Dick Cheney's daughter. You know this because you wrote a story about the Cheneys and Liz Cheney I was did. I re- at the center of it, right? Yeah, she was sort of the the thrust of it was sort of the family dynamics. You know, that's what's so interesting about the children of, of big, powerful presidential figures. Uh, the family dynamics, uh, she has a sister, uh, Liz does, who, you know, came out as gay and she kind of took a different route in life and didn't get into the politics and the family had to grapple with that. So it was all interesting to write about. And then as a part of that, I ended up having lunch with her in a diner, Mm. uh, Liz Cheney I'm talking about, um, in McLean, Virginia, where the family seat of the Cheney's family. And at the time, she was trying to help her dad work on a memoir. And I kind of don't remember whether that memoir actually ever appeared, but seems like it didn't materialize. But her political uh, ambitions were already beginning to surface at the time. And of course, they have since materialized as she is the senator from Wyoming. So, um, Would you have ever guessed, sitting down with her in that diner, that she would be the figure that she is at this present moment? Did that ever cross your mind? No, no. The opposite. The whole whole belief at the time is that she was sort of in the avant-garde, if you will, of of the Republican crazy, right? She was the one who was willing to go out and just— uh, she was a hammer. You know, she'd come out and say whatever the most severe thing you could say about President Barack Obama at the time, she would be the one saying it. So here we are, you know, the barbarians have crashed through the gate literally, right, uh, on January 6th. And she's sort of saying, oh, that's the step too far. It's it's so funny because it's not that Dick Cheney or Liz Cheney have changed to become more sane. It's that the goalpost has moved so much when it comes to sanity Absolutely. and what, we've, what we're willing to accept and the crazy that we tolerate. And Dick Cheney and Liz Cheney are exactly who they were when you wrote about them 10 years ago. Our threshold for kind of absolute terrible people being less terrible as compared to other more terrible people has just shifted. And that's something that we should just right. note and acknowledge. And we don't have to accept bad things because there are worse things out there. Absolutely. Well, what's happened is even the Cheneys, like the Bushes, like the Clintons, have become to take on the you know, role of the elites, you know. So even though Dick Cheney was, he was like, you know, I think he was like a high school wrestler or something in Wyoming, and he kind of made his way up up through the world to become vice president of the United States. He was not the usual elite, but he became one. And so now you can look at Liz Cheney. They can, Republicans can, Trump followers can, and see somebody who represents 
kind of old Washington power that they're not interested in anymore, which is sort of, you know, this. And so the world turns. Exactly right. Um, and so anyway, back to Hunter. Um, he's a different animal altogether and um, doesn't have the political aspirations. I guess that was, you know, at one time his older brother. But um, but he does give us and can give us in, in his book, definitely did, and I'm sure in your interview, kind of insights into what it's like to be under that hot lamp in a family with that much expectation and then to crack under it. It's true. Really, it's, right? it's such a deep look at what this is like. And, and I think that the... I don't know the Cheneys and I have not spent nearly as much time thinking about them as I have other famous political families. But I think what sets the Biden family apart is they're an actual family and they're a yes. family like probably that's more relatable than the Clintons or the Cheneys, certainly the Trumps, certainly the Bushes. And they are there for each other. They have each other's back. They do what is hard because they want to be there for each other. And we talk all about that in the interview. We also talk about what it's like to be used as a political football by the other first family, the former first family. And his dissection of the Trump family's obsession of him was one of the most insightful things. As someone who has spent so many years uh, thinking about the psyche of the Trump family, it was spot on to me. And, uh, it just is, it's, it's so worth listening to. I hope you guys enjoy it. And next week we are back with another great interview. And the week after that, we have a lot of really great things coming your way. So we are just excited that you're here. Let us know how you think about this interview. And we can't wait to, to hear your thoughts. Can't wait. Here we go. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Have you heard about Mint Mobile? Do you know what it's all about? Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those savings right on to you. I've been using Mint Mobile for weeks, and I've been impressed both by the quality and by the price. Mint Mobile offers premium wireless for 15 bucks a month. All plans come with unlimited talk and text and high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. You can choose from three, six, or 12-month plans and say goodbye to a monthly phone bill. So to get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com slash hive. That's mintmobile.com slash H-I-V-E. Cut your monthly wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash hive. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. 
At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. Hunter, I'm so happy to have you here. Thank you for taking the time to do this. Oh, thank you. It's my honor. I really appreciate it. I'm happy to have you here in general. I just told you this before we started recording, but I've read the book twice. I wrote about the book for Vanity Fair. We've talked about it on the podcast. Um, you haven't done many interviews around the book, but the ones you have, I've watched and listened to all of them. I'm particularly happy to be talking to you this week on a personal level because I'm at home with my family for the first time in 15 months. I have not seen them uh, in a very long time. And I live in, my parents live in the Philadelphia suburbs, not far from where your mom grew up. Um, I went to Penn just like your daughters. And um, I'm actually almost eight months pregnant. So I just feel like I am in a family zone and that feels like the right way to talk to you for the first time. Well, that all is, uh, is wonderful. It's such an amazing feeling to be able to to be back and feel safe and at home. And I think a lot of people are getting to experience that right now. Yeah. And so congratulations. And I feel like we're almost neighbors. The truth of the matter is, is that I, it's hard to believe that in some way we haven't met between all the different connections. But thank right. you for having me. And that, that's a... It's a beautiful way to start the show because, you know, the book is all about, um, it's a love letter to my family and it's a love letter to all the families out there who have, uh, are still sick and suffering from, um, from addiction, but also grief and loss. And I think that's so many of us, um, at, particularly at this time. Of course. I, you know, I can't decide if I feel like your book is first and foremost a book about family or if it's first and foremost a book about addiction. And it could really go either way in my mind. But I guess as an American in 2021, you probably couldn't write a book about either one of those things without it really being a book about the other, right? That's exactly it, Emily. I mean, I don't know. I haven't talked to anyone about addiction and whether it's my own experience, but usually it, it devolves or, or evolves into the discussion about their own experience in their own family. And I think that it's uh, ubiquitous. I don't, uh, I don't know of anyone that hasn't had someone that they love dearly um, or themselves that has some way struggled with the, uh, with the disease. And it is something that ravages his families across every group, mm. but it's also the one thing that we still just don't talk about openly. Um, there's this sense of shame and a stigma around it that um, even within families, it's kind of something that is only discussed in hushed tones. And I hope this is a, an opportunity for people to speak out loud about it and if they don't speak about it, the one thing that I know is that they live in that shame that they feel around their disease. It's really hard to get help. And it's really hard to get better. Mm. 
you know, you're so right that there is still so much of a stigma and shame around this. And even within families, people don't talk about it, which I think makes what you did even more remarkable because you're not just a member of a family. You are a member of the family. And to my mind, you are probably the only first son who has written very honestly about uh, their superpower of of knowing where to find crack in any town and knowing how to cook it and living in in what you describe as an odd couple with someone in Washington D.C. while your dad was was working in the White House and and doing crack together and going from rehab to rehab. You were incredibly open and candid about your struggles as a first son. I, I don't know how the hell you got the nerve to do that? What what made you take the step out and take the risk to, to share everything so honestly as you did? I don't know whether it started off as a, uh, in my mind, as a, as a brave decision. Um, I just started to write the book. And I've always um, I've been a writer. I've never published anything. But the one thing I know about, at least for me in writing, is that it's very difficult for me not to write as honestly as I can. And that's where I started. I, I started with the idea that, um, that I just was going to tell my story. Um, and most of that started, it was easy because what I really wanted to talk about was this unbreakable bond, this love that, uh, that is this family, that is my family. Mm. And I think the thing that, uh, I don't think, I know the thing that ultimately saved me from myself, um, from my disease, but was obvious. <laughs> I obviously understood, um, that my, um, being as candid and as vivid about, um, the darkness that I found myself in, uh, would have, uh, a, you know, a different weight than uh, just because of who my dad is and who my family are. And so I'm really, really proud of the fact that I think that what I most wanted to let people know is that they're not alone um, yeah. and that even the son of the president of the United States, or at the time, the son of the vice president or the former vice president, um, suffered in the same way uh, that that they may have. You know, it's so interesting you say that because so much of your father and your family's narrative has been defined by that kind of empathetic connection to other people's struggles, that, that your family's losses and your wins and your struggles and your values are things that are incredibly relatable to other people's losses and wins and, and struggles and values. And I feel like that has been, been definitional to the Bidens in public life and I'm sure in private life as well. So it's not a surprise to me that you are the first first son to share this kind of thing because that's kind of the Biden way, right? Yeah. You know, I, I think that um, part of that it has to do with uh, growing up in Delaware. And it's a small place. And from the moment my dad uh, entered public life um, and my mom and my sister, my brother and I were in that car accident that took my mom and my sister, um, we were kind of adopted by this beautiful community of people in the state of Delaware. And 
and because of the way that my family is, and particularly my dad, is that we shared in people's losses and grief because they saw that there was someone that they could um, connect with in my dad and in my brother and I, mm. and, um, and maybe seek some solace in that, well, we made it through, well, maybe they can. And, um, and it's a small enough place that, uh, that, you know, you get to feeling that you, you know, everybody and, um, and they share their stories with, uh, with you. And again, to just not feel so alone. And I will say this is that my dad is everything that, um, people see in that empathy. Um, uh, when he's on television, he's, he's that and more in, in real life. You know, that jumped out to me, obviously, in the book. Uh, it's, it's obviously a huge part of his public narrative. But in your telling of the book, there are a few instances where I just felt like this is a good father. And this is, as I prepare to have yeah. my first baby, I just feel like uh, those are the moments where I probably cried the hardest because he just seems like a good man. And um, there are, there's, there's a few instances in particular where... He just showed up for you every time, no matter what that meant for him. And I, like, when you asked him to put out a statement when the tabloids were writing about your relationship with Hallie, or there was a, a scene in the book that was just gut-wrenching where your parents and your daughters asked you to go to rehab in, in yeah. a way that you were not ready for. And your dad sort of chased you down the driveway and said he was terrified. And what can you, what, what could he do? And they were, they were real gut punches and it just, it stopped me in my, my reading tracks because it's so clear how much love and unconditional love he has for you. And uh, not everyone has that as particularly not every person who struggles through addiction and mental health crisis has a family and has a father or mother or, or daughters or sons or sisters or brothers that show up for them time and time again. And on both sides, it's a very, very difficult thing. Yeah, the, the people that I have the most, I'm, I'm most in awe of are people that don't have any of the advantages that I have had in my family, in my life, um, in my career. I've been so privileged. And, uh, and I think that is a rarity in recovery because the people that I know that are able to find that love that I found um, – and find that um, will and strength to to battle against their their own demons um, without the support that I have are just I think the most courageous people in the world. And mm. you know, I'm hyper aware of just how lucky I've been, and it's one of the reasons why I I spent so much time trying to answer the question of why why did why do I do this? Why did I why can't I put the drink or the drug down when I had every advantage? And, you know, I've finally come to the conclusion that it's, um, it's not a question um, that I can uh, ever adequately answer. Um, but I do know the reason why I keep trying. And I keep trying because I know that that love is available to me if I just reach out and, mm. and, uh, and grab hold of it, which ultimately I, I, I've done over and over again. And, and I hope that I'm doing every morning when I wake up, I just, 
I thank God for my family. And I thank God um, for all of the privilege and advantages that I've had to be able to wake up and, you know, see my one-year-old and hold him in my arms and be there for the people that are around me. It's a blessing. And as you say, it's, it's a beautiful thing. And I know that your brother was a reminder of all the grateful, all the, all the ways that, that we should be grateful in our lives. And it's a beautiful message to take away as, as you talk about the reason why you wrote this book and that you wanted to sort of show a way through this. I also couldn't help but think, you know, the question I think we've heard most probably from the right over the last three years has not been what can your country do for you or how can we serve you better as leaders or what do you Americans need? It's been where's Hunter? (laughs) And, uh, I sort of felt when I was reading this a little bit, like, was this your answer? Like, Oh, you want to know where Hunter's been? I'll tell you where Hunter's been. And it's not the kind of darkness that you want to portray. It's my own kind of darkness, but I'm going to tell it to you in my own words with proper context, honestly, so that everything is on the table, both for me and for my dad. Is that right? Am I picking up what you were putting down or am I just making that up? No, you're not making it up at all. Um, the thing that allowed me to put pen to paper first was um, just wanting, I mean, it was very selfish and that I had to, I had to write the story for myself. It was incredibly cathartic, this whole process and continues to be, to be able to continue to talk about it. But you're absolutely right. And that I also um, knew that I would be definitively answering the question of where's Hunter, mm. um, which was uh, at times comical, at times incredibly threatening. You know, when they publish my my address and people show up in all hours of the night, and it's terrifying. Pregnant wife and and continues to be both of those things. I mostly am just able to ignore it to the best of my ability. But I knew that I had a story that was far different than the one in which they tried to paint. And I also knew that I had to take um, ownership of all the things in in my life, um, the good and the bad. And know at the end of the day that it's a story of hopefully redemption and it's a story of love and it's a story about a family that is just like yours just like um and i don't i mean uh, you know uh, the generic yours um, sure. family and and that we uh, are a family that has uh, the same struggles the same uh, ups and downs the same setbacks and losses um that uh, so many of us uh, experience, or we all experience. One of the things that I've come to believe deeply is that the only thing every human is guaranteed to experience in life is pain. Mm. And the question is, is how do we, how do we deal with that pain? Um, How do we interact with it? How does it impact us? And how does it impact the people around us? And I'm finally in a place where, I can um, address that pain openly and honestly. And I just happen to be in a family that is a very public, if not the most public family every four to eight years um, <laughs> that, that, that the world gets introduced to. And maybe I can have a chance to let other people know that 
they can try to deal with their pain in a way in which um, they don't have to um, lie about it. They don't have to feel ashamed about um, and they can um, hopefully use it to give them strength. And if you are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake, at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There is five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically, I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts. Well, everyone goes through, pardon my French, but everyone goes through shit, right? It's not everyone's shit is the same, but everyone, has, everyone has their stuff and everyone's family has their stuff ever, beyond. And so the fact that you, who are so public, is willing to own their shit is something that is different and commendable. Why do you think they're so obsessed with you? Is it to get to your dad? Do they want to throw him off? Or are you, were you an easy target? I can't quite yeah. wrap my head around, particularly for someone like Don Jr., which, I mean, I've literally written a book about him. It seems like projection from <laughs> one. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I laugh. I, the only reason I laugh is because I just, like, at some point, it just it becomes a farce. And yeah. um, But I, I have my theories, but I don't know if any um, one reason can answer um, your question. But what I do think is this, if you just look at it from a, just kind of clinically, is that what do we know about Joe Biden? We know that his family is the most important thing in the world to him. Mm. We know that he just lost his son, um, his, uh, my brother, Bo. And what do we know that would throw him off his game uh, the most? And that's to attack his, you know, only living son. And I've always made the point that I don't think that anyone was going to vote or not vote for my dad because I was a, a drug addict or um, based upon verifiably false allegations or accusations. But I think that they thought that they would be able to um, create an, enough tension inside of our family that it would make it very difficult for my dad to um, to focus on what requires 100% of your focus in mm. the campaign for the presidency. And I could have told him that before. It just has the opposite effect in my family. Mm. Uh, if it was possible to bring us closer together, um, it brought us closer together. It was an absolute sense that um, that no matter what, we're going to make it through this and we're going to do it together. And I tell that story at the end of the book where it was before the election, a week before the election, and a very close friend of mine said to me, you know, well, maybe this maybe this is all going to have a happy ending. And without thinking, without any um, reflection, I, I simply, I said the truth, which is 
the story's already had a happy ending. Mm. It has absolutely already had a happy ending. We are together and closer than uh, I could have ever hoped for as a family um, and continue to be. And we all have each other. And that's the only thing that is ever the goal in, uh, in the way that uh, my brother and I and my sister were raised. Mm. I think your read is spot on. And I think uh, the only thing I could add is I I think you're right, and I think the problem with their calculation was that they don't have a family like yours, and so their conception of how a family would react in the situation is completely different. Well, so. by the way, I totally agree with that, and I and I I think that um, you know I think John Heilman's I think said this at least the first person I heard say it, and I repeat it all the time, which is everything with them is either projection or confession. Exactly. And it really, really is amazing um, to the degree which that is a, uh, is a true statement. I usually don't say everything, but in this case, it sure seems like everything. I agree. I, and I also, I'm so happy to not talk about them anymore. I'm sorry to even bring them up, no. but I, I, I had to do it. I'm so yeah. sick of it. No, uh, it's all right. I, I, I get, sometimes it's okay to a little bit of venting. I agree. Yeah. It feels cathartic. Yeah. Uh, one thing that really jumped out at me as we're talking about you telling your story is that in the middle of the campaign, you were interviewed by a reporter from The New Yorker, and, and he wrote a story that was really remarkable. Uh, and you write about it in the book that you were not sober at the time, but you were spending hours sort of bearing your soul to a reporter and telling your story. And obviously that whole thing is is amazing. But what really jumped out to me as a reporter was that this was not something that was coordinated with the campaign. <laughs> and I, well, like my yeah. eyes jumped out of their sockets when I read that because it's so not how campaigns usually operate. And I was just amazed. How did that, how did that fly? I didn't, um, you know, I mean, <laughs> and, and as any professional worth their salt would never have thought that that was a good idea. And I, so I, I, I don't think that I'm some kind of genius for, um, for unilaterally making that decision because it wasn't made. Um, uh, I, number one is that I had literally at that point decided that I was going to, um, you know, just disappear. I write about it in the book about that period of time where I just tried everything I had tried, uh, you know, I have a game treatment. I was still so devastatingly sad and just consumed by my grief about Bo. I was uh, smoking uh, crack incessantly, literally around the clock for um, uh, days and days and days upon it and, uh, without end. And I just had, you know, decided that I wasn't going to actively take my life, but what I was going to actively do was just allow myself to be consumed by the darkness that is that addiction. And, and I got a call. Um, I got an email actually, um, from, uh, a lawyer, uh, who's also a very close friend who said, just to let you know, Adam Antos, New Yorker, Pulitzer Prize writing, um, uh, journalist wants to speak to you. And I'm a, a, a total New Yorker snob since I was like a teenager and wanted to, you know, my, my highest goal was to have a short story published in the New Yorker. And so I, I called him. I, I read some of his stuff and, and um, I picked up the phone and called him. And what happened was, is that I just got to talking. And I don't think that it was some 
you know, rational um, choice on my part. But Adam is a is a, a very good journalist, and he's I think a very unbiased and um, and fair journalist. And he asked the right questions, and he asked them in a way that, with an open mindedness, that I thought that I decided what I was going to do at some point was just tell him the real story, mm. because the story that was being told was so just absolutely you know, off that I decided that it was, um, that, that I just was going to tell him what was really going on in my life. And it was all about, you know, my struggle at the time. And amazingly, I attribute those conversations with just keeping my heart open a crack enough to see Melissa and to see the unconditional love in her eyes. You know, but it wasn't. It certainly wasn't a, a, a coordinated effort at all. How did it work coming out with the book? I mean, you you came out with a book that is the most honest account of the most harrowing journey that I could imagine. And your father is in his first hundred days of office. What are the conversations like there? They uh, they knew that I was writing the book, and you know, and they were very very supportive of it. I had made the decision not to, I'd finished the book well before um, the election and decided that I wasn't going to release the book then. Uh, and then I decided I wasn't going to release it before the inauguration. And then I decided, that, and I, I realized at some point that the book had to stand on its own, but they knew about it and they had it. And, um, and uh, just my mom and my dad. And by the way, I mean, the, the biggest Part of this story too is my three daughters, mm. Naomi, Finnegan, and Maisie, who, without them, I wouldn't be here right now. I mean, they, as much as my dad, my brother, and um, were constant in pulling me back from the brink, my daughters were just as much and continue to be, and have always been my rock. Mm. Um, and they're amazing, amazing women, um, each in their own right, and. I love and adore them more than anything in the world. And I know they feel the same about me. And so they all got a chance to read the book. Um, you know, it's, it's not an easy thing to read. Now they lived it all, but you know, the, the details, the level of uh, description that I provide, I think it's hard for anybody that loves me to read. Um, I think on a page is also very different than living it. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Ultimately, though, I think that they're really proud of, uh, I don't think, I know they're really proud of me. I think that they are really proud of the book and, and the honesty and um, that's there. It's, it's hard to imagine them feeling otherwise. Uh, just, just as a reader and someone who has a family, I feel like it's just a beautiful thing that, that you did. Are you still writing? Are you going to keep writing? What's what's next on the writing front for you? I hope so. Yeah, I you know I <laughs> I continue to write, and um, one of the things that I have been doing in my recovery, which um, I've been afforded the space um, to be able to do um, by by no fault of my own or uh, no actions of my own, is I've been like everybody else, um, in quarantine, we had a baby and, um, been able to be home. And so I start my, my day really early. Um, and I get up and I, I literally 
have a what they call a, a you know a gratitude list. I think mm. of all of the things in my life that I have to be grateful for, and there are so many, and they continue to grow. And then I, uh, I'm usually up by like five, and I write for an hour, an hour and a half until Bowie woke, wakes up. I was named after my brother, and and then you know we eat breakfast together, and uh, and then I do all the other work that I have have to do with him sitting on my lap half the time, <laughs> or more than half the time. Like all parents in the pandemic. Yeah. But the uh, so it, it, it's a long answer to a short question. I yes, I hope to continue to write, and I hope to continue to be able to uh, what they uh, refer to in um, the program is uh, share my experience, strength, and hope. And uh, it's kind of a corny way of saying, you know, I think that the uh, uh, the first book was about experience and maybe the second book will be about the really long journey, uh, which is it's just the one of living in recovery mm-hmm. and uh, living in that healthy fear, but not being consumed by it, uh, that you have to be vigilant every day um, with the knowledge that. Uh, one drink for me may be um, the end of everything. And so mm. I just remain vigilant about that. And writing about that now is something that um, that helps me with that. I would imagine that that is an incredibly useful thing. And I also, uh, I know you've been very clear about not being part of this administration. Um, but is this something that you talk about with your dad, about his administration tapping into? It's obviously such a prevalent thing in this country that everyone can relate to. Uh, you guys have such personal experience with it. I would imagine it's something that uh, could be a priority for him. Oh, yeah, I sure hope so. I, I sure hope that we're able to, uh, in this country, not just in the administration, but decision makers and, um, and people in positions of, of power uh, that have power over policy decisions uh, start to really talk about addiction uh, as a mental health issue and not a criminal justice issue. And I think that uh, with the leadership of people like um, Patrick Kennedy and so many others that have been out on the forefront of this in a very public way, uh, longer than I have, I hope that uh, we'll be able to really start to have a um, an honest discussion. And I've been really encouraged to see such incredible bravery, for instance, on the part of, uh, of Mrs. McCain um, in talking about her own struggles with addiction. Patty Davis, uh, President Reagan's daughter, um, also speaking out about it. I, I think, as you know, Emily, this is not something that people have a hard time wrapping their heads around. Mm. Uh, my choice of drug may be a, a little bit shocking to many people, but I'll tell you what, the most difficult drug to put down and the one that does more damage than any I know is alcohol. Mm. And it's something that I think everybody, um, every family, every person has had experience with. So... I read it in your book, you talking about the the days between the election and when the results were final. Yeah. <laughs> and you guys were all together. Yeah. Uh, that Saturday morning will always be very special to me because I actually found out I was pregnant. Uh, oh, in, wow. In the yeah. minutes between um, yeah. when we were waiting for results and 
when we found out, I, I took my pregnancy test when we still didn't know. And the news was announced and I forgot about my pregnancy test because I was so <laughs> uh, excited yeah. about what was happening. So yeah, yeah. Uh, I will always remember your family yeah. in connection with my family. Yeah. And so when I was reading about that week, I was just like, what was that like in that house? The rest of America was on pins and needles, glued to cable news, probably not changing out of pajamas, not sleeping. What is it like in the Biden house in that stressful, insane, topsy-turvy week? Well, you will not be surprised to learn <laughs> that we were like every other family in America. I'm sure. <laughs> we were literally, and number one, you know, we had to stay in our bubble and, right. um, and we were quarantined. If it wasn't for COVID, then, you know, my Aunt Valerie, uh, who is one of my dad's closest advisors in entire career, and my right. Uncle Jimmy, who's also... Um, you know, the smartest person in my family and and my best friend, uh, we would have all been there. But it was me, Naomi Finnegan and Maisie, Natalie and Hunter, mom and dad, um, and then Annie and Anthony, who are like family. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, I don't think at least I know that I probably didn't change my my genes because, <laughs> that, you know, I mean, I slept in them. Are you no, I, okay. I, I'm well, the, my uncle Jimmy um, will uh, will go about 100 miles to avoid, you know, if a, a black cat crosses of his course. path. But um, I'm but not, not so you're superstitious. You're not changing your clothes because there's like. No, a no, no. It's just because I literally it was I, I didn't I, I don't know how much I don't think I slept very much that totally. whole week. And totally. um, but, you know, we were all there just on, you know, up and down and up and down. But the one thing that was the the. The constant is this, it's like, that's when I realized that, uh, I'm not realized, I didn't even have to realize. It wasn't something like, oh my gosh, but I did look around at one point and just say, you know what? Nothing, nothing is going to break this family. Not mm -hmm. even if we hear bad news in this, nothing is going to break this family. Mm -hmm. And, um, and thank God. I also think that one of the, um, uh, not because of simply winning, but to see the reaction around the country, the spontaneous outburst of joy. I had so many people send me, you know, uh, little video clips that they were just taking from their iPhone from their window, whether oh my it was gosh. my buddy in Cleveland or whether it was my, you know, uh, friend here in, you know, L.A. And the spontaneous celebrations that were occurring in New York City and Chicago and everywhere. And it just was so overwhelmingly joyful. Mm. And I, I hope we're holding on to that a little bit. I think we have so much to be grateful for in a time in which we've gone through so much darkness. And I don't mean just political darkness. I mean the, uh, the darkness of this um, the virus exposed so many of the things that uh, uh, people are suffering from that aren't going to go away necessarily when COVID goes away. And grief and loss and addiction, and I hope that we can start talking about it in an honest way and maybe help a lot of people along the way. I know that it will, and I am just so grateful for you telling your story as honestly as you did, and particularly grateful for you stopping by and and sharing more with me and taking the time to answer my questions. I'm so glad that we got to have this conversation. So am I, Emily. I mean, the, for, from the bottom of my heart, I'm so honored when people 
have read the book and, and that's the message that they take away from it. And I really, really, really appreciate it. It means the world to me. Thank you. Thank you to my guest, Hunter Biden, and of course, my co-host, Joe Hagan. If you like this conversation, please be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive. You can find those on Apple Podcasts, radio.com, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a very nice review while you're there. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13, and of course, our great producer, Brett Fuchs. And thanks, of course, goes to our sponsors. Please support them any way you support this podcast. We will see you right here next week. Hi, I'm Lauren Good. I'm a senior writer at Wired, and I'm co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab, along with Michael Calore. Each week on Gadget Lab, we tackle the biggest questions in the world of technology with reporters from inside the Wired newsroom. We cover everything from personal tech. Because asking people to put a computer on one of the most personal and sensitive parts of your body is just like, it's a big bet. Broader trends in Silicon Valley. There are just so many laid off workers out there that workers just don't have a lot of power. And the exciting and terrifying world of AI. It's inevitable that the internet is going to be filled with like AI generated nonsense. And so he just thinks he might as well make some money playing a small part in a thing that he sees as unstoppable. Wired's Gadget Lab is here to keep you informed and to keep it real. The entire point of the phone should be on some level to hate it. (laughs) (laughs) New episodes of Gadget Lab are available weekly wherever you get your podcasts.